uh, would you turn to First Peter with me? Um, we have been in this book for quite a while. We've got just a couple more weeks left in First Peter. Um, but I, I was going to say suspect, I say that a lot, but I absolutely will revisit this book often in my reading time because it has been in, incredible in encouraging me, giving me a clarity on what it means to know Christ and follow Christ. And so I hope that you have experienced that within First Peter as well. And, and, I, and I know that over the next couple of weeks as we wrap up this book, it's, it's going to be wonderful. Uh, and we'll head into a season of Advent, which we're looking forward to. Yes, it's almost Christmas. Isn't that wild? Um, so thankful for you. And so as you turn to First Peter, I want to say it's not every day you get a chance to get into the mind of Christ, to look at his thinking, look at his way of going about life. Well, today, we're sort of going to do that. Would you read with me or follow along as I read 2 Peter uh, chapter 4? We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Chapter 4, 1 Peter says this, Since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Just a reference of those who don't follow Christ is what that means there. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Perhaps a few things confusing even as we read that, that with our time together I hope will be cleared up. But here again, Christ is put before them and put before us again as a model, an inspiration if you will. Now this has been the consistent pattern for Peter. What has he been doing? He'll give instructions on how to suffer well. He'll root those instructions in the glorious truths about our salvation. And then he often puts Christ forward as our suffering example. This has been the constant pattern of 1 Peter. Suffer well. Here's some instructions. Here's why you can do that. And look to Jesus as our example. And here again, Christ stands above all others as our one and true example. Perhaps this goes without saying, but setting him before us on how to live is a healthy habit. (laughs) Understatement of the year, right? But putting Christ forward and examining and looking at his life and perhaps trying to get into the way of thinking of Jesus is an incredible 
endeavor for you and I. It's a very healthy habit. This morning, we're going to examine, according to Peter, Christ's way of thinking, particularly about suffering, his understanding, if you will. Now, just a total side note, but I want to just always be clear every time we come to First Peter and we talk about suffering. I don't want to be too repetitive, but this is good for us. The suffering in view here is suffering for following Christ, okay? I, want to, I just want to keep that in mind. It's just thrown out there, the word suffering, but it has with it the entirety of the book, suffering for following Christ. This morning, it seems that we are to look to him, to look to Christ, but not only look at him, which is worthy of our time, but look at his understanding specifically, And then, as we look at his understanding, we are now supposed to take that and arm ourselves with it. Prepare ourselves, get ready for battle, if you will. It's his understanding, his way of thinking that we're supposed to put on, arm ourselves, use to equip ourselves for suffering in particular. Now, first Peter says that, or Peter says that here somewhat plainly, I'll admit, in verse 1. It's, it's pretty straightforward at the beginning and gets a little weird at the end, right? But the beginning is, is really plain. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, much like you now, Christ has done that. He has walked that same path. So since, therefore, that he has suffered in the flesh, much like you are, you should do something. This is the one imperative in this six verses. This is the command. Arm yourselves. With what? Weapons? Water? Hydrate? I don't like arm myself. With what? Well, with the same understanding. It's like, well, arm myself. I was thinking for something a little better here. But yet, something about our thinking is so significant that it will radically either prepare us, equip us, or cause us to go way off the rails. So the arming that we're supposed to do is to take on the same understanding, take on the same resolve, if you will, take on the same way of thinking. That's what same means here. The same understanding that Christ has. And then right out of that, it moves very quickly. Therefore, Christ suffered him, so arm yourself in the same way of thinking. And then it gives way to unpacking the understanding that we are to arm ourselves with. Do you see the flow? Kind of makes sense? Do this, arm yourself, and then unpack what we are to understand about Christ's way of thinking in terms of suffering. That's how I understand even the very next phrase. What do we get? We get arm yourself with the same thinking. Then that thinking is flushed out with the next few verses. So we could say arm yourselves with the same thinking, which is this. That seems to be the progression that Peter is drawing us into. It's not every day that we get to get into the brain, the thinking of Jesus. But that seems to be what Peter is doing. 
arm yourself with the resolve, the thinking, the understanding that he had about suffering because he suffered well, didn't he? Now, the first statement that we get, that we should unpack, that we should arm ourselves with, that we should have a resolve is this. Here's what we are to have. It says this, the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, that's clear as mud, isn't it? (laughs) Huh? It doesn't take me for about three seconds of waking up to realize I've I still struggle with sin. What could this possibly mean? What is this thinking? What is this understanding about suffering that when someone suffers, they cease? Or we could say finish with sin. Well, first of all, who is it referencing? It seems to me that it's referencing those who would suffer rather than Christ himself, right? Christ is the example put up before sufferers to follow So it seems that the sense here is this. The one who willingly suffers in the flesh, notice that clear indication right now, here and now, suffering for following Christ, that here and now suffering that someone willingly takes upon themselves is finished with sin, is choosing to follow the will of God of God. That seems to be the sense here, that the one who willingly suffers is willingly choosing to follow God, almost to say, I'm done with that, and I want to do this. And I say this because of verse 2. It actually makes it a little bit more clear, doesn't it? The one who suffers apparently is living the rest of their life for the will of God, rather than human desires. There's something going on with the one who suffers. It seems to show us, it seems to be hinting at and somewhat making plain, I can say this morning, those people who willingly suffer have made a decision. They have considered their options each and every day. And where they have landed is that God's will is better. We are to arm ourselves and understand that to suffer is to decide that God's will is better. I am finished with that. I am not sinless, but I am finished with with that, because God's will is better. To suffer is to make a decision. To suffer for Christ and Christ alone, to suffer for following God, is a decision that you and I make to say that His will, His ways are better. And think about it, if that's the case, then we all could agree, in some sense, they are finished with sin because they are now working to pursue God's will. This is a radical change of living. We are to consider this morning, as we think about suffering, or the suffering life, if you will, 
to suffer inherently means we are making the decision to say that what God says is better. God's will, God's thinking, God's ways, as odd as they may seem, are far better, so I will pursue it because I'm finished with that. If we were to have a show of hands, and I don't need to have a show of hands, when you have chose and willingly said, you know what, God's will is better, I think more than likely it's worked out well for you. Well, let's take the flip side. When you have said, no, 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 sin's a little enticing in this moment, and you pursued sin. We have many stories where they just didn't quite work out well. To suffer in the way that Christ saw it means to decide that God's will is better, that it's worth it. Who would have ever thought that suffering helps the Christian avoid sin? Isn't that a wonderful result of suffering for Christ? You may be thinking, Pastor, why do you say that? Because suffering shows a desire to stick with Christ. A desire to stick with God's will no matter what. So if someone is so preoccupied with God's will, wouldn't that indeed help them avoid sin? To be so enamored with the things of God, to be so preoccupied with obedience unto the Lord, it would indeed help us to avoid sin. But I have to because I've been doing it in my own heart this week. And the Lord has given me the privilege of pastoring here. Before we can get into that interesting result of suffering, avoidance of sin, I have to ask, is God's will better than man's desires, than human passions. Brothers and sisters, and those visiting with us, is God's will better in your mind? Is it worth it to be about the work of the Lord, despite what it may cause for you? Because this is at the heart of suffering for Christ. That is a life that believes God's will is better which causes sin's allure to fade just a little bit. Christ himself willingly threw himself into suffering. Why? Because it was better to do what the Father wills. Remember those wonderful words of Jesus? Not my will, but yours be done. This life, this way of living, to be about God's will above all things that will inevitably bring about some suffering, it helps a Christian avoid sin. It helps the Christian say, no, I am finished. I am not sinless, but I am finished with sin. It's enticement, it's allure, it's flashiness in the end just hurt. To be finished with sin is to decide that one will live at all costs 
for God's will. And we've learned a lot about God's will in 1 Peter. I encourage you this afternoon, read back through the letter. Won't take you long. See how often Peter makes it plain what God's will and desire is for us. God's will at some point wants us to be holy as he is holy. God's will is most clearly stated in 1 Peter to do good. To live out the character of God. That is better. So we must arm ourselves when we think about the Christian life. To suffer is to decide that God's will is better. And that it's worth it. And in doing that, brothers and sisters, we will pursue holiness. In doing that, we will grow and mature in our faith, and it will help us avoid sin. Because following the Lord is so glorious that all of a sudden sin just is like stinky, if you will. Just not worth it anymore. Peter is telling us to arm ourselves with this way of thinking, it's the thinking of Christ, that your suffering is a sign of a commitment to God's will And in the end, it helps us avoid sin. It helps us be holy. Now, there's a lot more to understand about suffering in the flesh. But on the outset, isn't this really encouraging to you and I? But there's so much more for us to unpack this morning. To suffer in the flesh, to suffer in following Christ, to suffer to simply being a follower of Jesus, part of the second thing that we must arm ourselves with is this. To suffer is to accept judgment. Let that sink in a little bit. To suffer is to accept the reality that judgment may come. Notice the next several verses 3 to 5. Once God's will is top priority, I'm, I'm, I'm finished with sin, so to suffer is to decide I'm finished with sin and God's will is worth it. And in doing so, I'm going to pursue holiness, avoid greater sins. Once God's will becomes a top priority and we find ourselves less concerned with sin, more intrigued by following Christ, we avoid sins, but don't you know that others are going to notice. Others are going to be taken back. Matter of fact, the text here says they will be surprised. That's what's happening in Peter's day. Those who he's writing to, all of those outside of that decision that God's will is better are surprised. They're taken back by this pursuit of God's will. Many of you perhaps even experienced that when you first came to Christ. Others you used to hang with, look at you with kind of a weird eye. Huh. As we grow in our maturity and desire and faithfulness unto the Lord, inevitably others will be surprised, taken back. This will bring judgment. Interesting comments. Maybe frustrating comments. There is just an inability to comprehend why they, you, I, would not follow in the flood of sinful behaviors of everyone else. Why not? 
It's so fun. It's so wonderful. Peter says that enough time has passed to make it plain the desires of all the non-believers. Which, what is made plain in all this time that has passed and all that they have pursued, what is actually made plain about the the non-believers that are causing the suffering for these followers of Christ, it could best be described as this way. Unrestrained behavior. Now, I mean, that alone, and just logically speaking, isn't going to work out very well in your life. For the Christian, there's a lot more at play, but just simply living a life of unrestrained behavior, hmm, that just simply isn't going to work. Taking everything good, making it evil. Now, did you catch this list? It is really no small list, right? So what are we to understand? We're to understand the sins of the non-believers that believers are not participating in are obvious, grievous offenses to the Lord. They're not small preferences or Christian liberty issues. This is not about a drink or two. No, these are outright wrongs. Unrestrained fulfillment of desire. That's not a great life to live. Unrestrained fulfillment of all your desires. Well, if you're anything like me, you're a bundle of desires, some good, some not so good. If you fulfilled all of them, we realize that would be really problematic and not worth it. But what is on display is unchecked lust, unchecked self-control that's seen in drunkenness, sexual sins, and worst of all, idolatry. Which for the the Christian is a major, major offense to God. That's why it is so plain that mm, I can participate here. It's so clear. Because I've made a decision that God's will is better and his way is better. Whether you see it or not, I know and trust. So to suffer is to decide that that's better. And it also is to decide and accept weird looks. Judgment. A misunderstanding of why you're doing what you're doing. Because in their hearts, and what time has shown is unchecked lust is wonderful. (laughs) Unchecked self-control, let's go for it. Because you see, when self-control and sober-mindedness grips the Christian, several things Peter has said should, should mark us, when it grips the Christian, these activities, these behaviors are no longer a part of our lifestyle. You see, in the cultural moment of the day, that, have, that would have placed them outside of the norms, perhaps made them killjoys, you're stuck in the mud, out of touch. And this would have made them targets for verbal abuse, societal abuse. Non-participation in outright sinful behaviors, choosing to follow God's will, it does at times bring suffering. It certainly did for those reading First Peter. And we know that this 
constant barrage of comments and statements and odd looks and misunderstanding. We know that this has a way of chipping away at our commitment to the Lord. It has a way of maybe just chipping away at their faithfulness to the Lord. So Peter is saying, arm yourself with this way of thinking. To suffer is to decide to follow God's will. And in doing that, you're making a decision to accept judgment. But Peter says, there's more to it. He reminds them of something significant. Did you catch it? They, the ones hurling insults, what will happen to them? Though they cast judgment here and now in the flesh, they will give an account to the one who judges. To suffer, yes, is to accept judgment. But to suffer is to accept judgment now for vindication later. You see how often Peter lifts their eyes up to what is to come. Sure, you may deal with a lot in the flesh, in the moment, but that is for now. Arm yourself with the thinking, yes, I willingly take on the suffering and I accept judgment now for vindication later. It is far better for the judge who judges all, the living and the dead will see, it is far better for him to judge, look upon your life, and see a life spent in following Christ. The Lord sees, the Lord knows, and the Lord will judge. So stay firm, because vindication is coming. Arm your mind with this thinking. To suffer is to accept judgment now for vindication later. It is not for you to fight to be seen as right. Let the Lord do that. It'll be far more glorious than you and your arguments. <laughs> but it will come, and the Christian holds tightly to that. The way of thinking for us is sure Suffering is only for a moment. Vindication will come. So here's two glorious things as we understand the way of thinking of Jesus. Deciding that God's will is better. To suffer is to accept judgment now for vindication later. But lastly, in this short six verses, our way of thinking about suffering is to see that it reveals to us that we are and will actually live for eternity. The last way of our thinking, it reveals, suffering reveals to us and reminds us that in suffering we are actually living. And that sounds counterproductive. That doesn't sound very good. But suffering is reminding us that we are actually living because the judgments now will give way to life eternal later. You see, that's the overarching point of the last verses of arm ourselves 
Though we suffer now in the flesh, our vindication, the judgment over us, those who've heard the gospel and responded, is that we will live in heaven for eternity the way God does. Don't you love that last statement? The way God does. So bring it on. To suffer is to remind me that we will actually live and we are actually living. You see, that's what this text is saying. That is what Peter is getting at here. That is what is meant about this phrase, while the gospel was preached to the dead. You may have thought and read that and says, hmm, that seems a bit odd. But as we said last week, there's nothing in 1 Peter that's pointing to some post-mortem conversion. We know that's not an option. No, what is really actually fairly clear here, the Christian heard the gospel while living, responded, and this response, this faith and repentance and this new devotion to Christ, well, it caused judgment in the flesh. And there was lots of judgment heaped, a judgment by non-believers that brought about a tremendous amount of suffering. But the ultimate judgment that will come in their death is life eternal. The way God lives. Their suffering is to point to their final resting place, eternity with God. The Christian heard the gospel while living, responded. It brought judgment in the flesh. It brought judgment by non-believers. It brought suffering. But you know the judgment in our death from God himself will be life eternal. Let judgment come. Let judgment fly because eternity, what will be judged of us is that we were in Christ. And so though we may suffer the judgment now, it points us to our final resting place, eternity with God. To suffer in the flesh is to actually live in the spirit. Notice the contrast between the two. Well, the suffering and judgment in the flesh will give way to living in the Spirit forever. Whenever we say in our house forever, we think of that line of Sandlot, forever. I want to just slow it down. We'll live forever. <laughs> The judgment and the suffering in the flesh will give way to life in the Spirit. Arm yourself, brothers and sisters, with that way of thinking. Is God's will better? Absolutely. Why is it better? Well, various reasons. Helps us avoid sin. It brings about a great vindication later. And it reminds us that we suffer today, tomorrow, hopefully not tomorrow for some of you, but, you know, metaphorically, tomorrow we live in the Spirit. Forever. That's good news. This is the thinking, the way of Christ, the suffering life, the suffering Jesus. This is what we are to arm ourselves with. Arm yourself with all the... um, 
clear thinking that you want. Arm yourself with the greatest, latest book on suffering you want. All of it pales in comparison to the way of Jesus, to his thinking. And to try to make it rememberable, to catch this in speech, suffering Christians avoid sin, accept judgment, and actually live. Those are all very loaded, but we just unpacked all of those. The way of thinking is to remind ourselves that suffering Christians avoid sin, accept judgment, and actually live. Now that's living. Now this way of thinking, it arms ourselves to live well. That way of thinking was true for Peter's audience, and it's true for us today. It's true for us right now in this very moment. To suffer is to decide that God's will is better. I've got to ask again, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you really think following God is better? To suffer is to accept judgment now for vindication later. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is more to come? Can you hang on? Has your hope grown cold? Peter would remind us, and the way of Jesus would remind us, don't let it grow cold. To suffer is to, yes, accept the judgment now, but brothers and sisters, vindication is coming. Victory is ours in Christ, as we looked at last week. It's been declared. It is solidified. So though we suffer, accept judgment now, vindication is coming. Do you believe that? To suffer is, to, to suffer in the flesh is to actually live in the spirit forever. I just love the contrast that Peter is doing. Suffer in the flesh, live in the spirit. <laughs> Amen. Suffer is momentary. That's, that's how the humans do it. But living in the spirit is forever. That's how God does it. Hang on, weary Christian. Hang on, brothers and sisters. If you're visiting with us today, and none of this makes any sense to you, I'm glad you're here. Because to the Christian, this is glorious news for us. And I wonder, as we consider Christ, I wonder if you would consider Christ and all that he has done for us, particularly in his suffering. When I read this text and, and I think about what Peter is drawing us into, and he's already said, since Christ has suffered, arm yourself with his thinking. I mean, is this not the way of Christ? Is this not the way of Christ and how he lived his life? And here, perhaps, will be a good time to transition to reflecting on 
the Lord's Supper. Perhaps this is a good moment for us to think about the way of Jesus. To think about the suffering servant Christ. It is only because of Christ that we could look at this text and we could say, yes and amen to those things. That we could actually be encouraged in our suffering because we can look at his life and all we see are those realities. A decision that God's will is better, accepting judgment for wonderful vindication later, and to live forever. As Jack comes this morning to prepare our elements. Here's how I'm going to guide us this morning in transitioning and responding to these glorious truths. As he prepares the elements, I want you to listen to these scriptures about the life of Jesus. Now, Peter has told us, I want you to arm yourself with a way of thinking. He's unpacked it. But I want to show you from the scriptures how Jesus absolutely was captivated, uh, was resolved in this way of thinking. Matthew 4. Here we see Jesus avoid sin. Why? Because God's will is better. Remember that statement that he says there in Matthew 4, 4? He says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus looks Satan square in the eye and he says, I'm going to add a little bit, no, idiot. This is what that text means. An idiot in the sense of, you don't get it. You don't understand what you are even saying. Jesus avoids sins because he knew God's will was way better. We've already looked at Luke 22, not my will, but your will be done. He begins that section with saying, what? Oh, if this could pass by me. But he knows to suffer is to decide that God's will is better. So since that's the case, let's suffer. Because God's will is better. This is what we see in Matthew 4. No, Satan, I will not go that way. Matthew 27, we see Jesus in those final days of his life accepting judgment. Don't you read the account of Jesus and scream at the text like, No! Jesus, jump off the cross and tell him who you are. We, we feel so like, defend yourself, defend yourself. And yet what we see is Jesus accepting judgment. Why? Because vindication is coming. The sufferer, Jesus, the way of thinking was, I don't need to defend myself. You will see clearly in a few days. Matthew 27, verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you've said so. How many of you, yes, but, but, but here's what I mean by that. <laughs> yep. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. 
Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Don't you hear the judgment that is coming your way? Don't you see the suffering that is right behind this judgment? But verse 14, but he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. How can Jesus do this? Because vindication was coming. Matthew 28, as that awful day comes and goes, and all looks lost. What we see in Matthew 28 is that actually, (laughs) actually, Jesus lives for eternity, forever. Matthew 28 Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of this week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified He looked dead, and he was dead, but he is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. He actually lives. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. See? Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me because he lives. This is the way of thinking when it comes to Jesus and because of what we will partake in, it reminds us that we too, 